named in honor of Stella Liebeck. Uh, you may remember several years ago, there's a lady who got some coffee from the McDonald's drive-thru and she spilled it on herself and it burned her. Coffee's hot. And she sued and she won. And so these um, are frivolous, successful lawsuits in the United States. Just, just enjoy these. Kathleen Robertson of Austin, Texas, was awarded $780,000 by a jury of her peers after breaking her ankle, tripping over a toddler who was running inside a furniture store. Kind of makes sense. The owners of the store were understandably surprised at the verdict, however, considering the misbehaving little toddler was Mrs. Robertson's. A 19-year-old, Carl Truman of Los Angeles, won $74,000 and his medical expenses when his neighbor ran over his hand with a Honda Accord. Mr. Truman apparently didn't notice there was someone at the wheel of the car when he was trying to steal his neighbor's hubcaps. Terrence, did y'all get that? Okay. Terrence, he was stealing hubcaps and he got his hand run over and he won. Terrence Dixon of Bristol, Pennsylvania was leaving a house he had just finished robbing by way of the garage. So he robbed the house he's cutting out through the garage. He was not able to get the garage door to go up since the automatic door wasn't working. He couldn't re-enter the house because the door connecting the house and the garage locked when he pulled it shut. So you got it? He's robbed the house he's stuck in the garage. Family was on vacation and Mr. Dixon found himself locked in the garage for eight days. He subsisted on a case of Pepsi he found in a large bag of dried dog food. He sued the homeowner's insurance, claiming the situation caused him undue mental anguish. He won $500,000. I'm going to skip that one. Um, a Philadelphia restaurant was ordered to pay Amber Carson of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, $113,500 after she slipped on a soft drink and broke her tailbone. Again, that, maybe that makes sense. The beverage was on the floor, however, because Miss Carson had thrown it at her boyfriend 30 seconds earlier during an argument. Kara Walton of Claymont, Delaware, successfully sued the owner of a nightclub in a neighboring city when she fell from the bathroom window to the floor and knocked out her two front teeth. This occurred while Miss Walton was trying to sneak out without paying her check. She was awarded $12,000 in dental expenses. And this is, this is the winner. This is excellent. This year's favorite could easily be Mr. Merv Grzynski of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Mr. Grzynski purchased a brand-new 32-foot Winnebago motorhome. On his first trip home, having driven onto the freeway, he set the cruise control at 70 miles per hour and calmly left the driver's seat to go into the back and make himself a cup of coffee. <laughs> not surprisingly, the RV left the road. The owner's manual did not say that he could not actually do this. The jury awarded him $1,750,000 plus a new motorhome. The Winnebago company has changed their owner's manual. We all have this fairness meter in us. There's this internal thing in us that when something like that happens, it's no, you don't get $500,000 for robbing somebody's house. You eat the dog food. That, that doesn't, there's something in us that riles up when things aren't fair. That's the AIG bonuses made so many people so, there was the principle. It didn't matter that how much money they actually got was such a small percentage of what they were given from the tax. It was the idea that they were using this money on bonuses. It just, it's not fair. And it, it frustrates. It makes us mad when things aren't fair. The only problem is, as a Christian, one of the first things you've got to turn off is your fair meter. You don't get very far with God with fair. It's not a value of God's, and it's not a value in the kingdom of God. He doesn't do fair. He doesn't. And if we're going to continue to be people who look for fair, 
the best we can hope for is to be frustrated. The worst that's going to happen is we're going to wake up one day and Jesus is going to be down the road and we're still going to be sitting back here looking around talking about why things aren't fair. And he's, he's gone. He's left us. We're going to look at two guys in the Old Testament. One, Saul, the first king of Israel. The second was David, the second king of Israel. And I'm going to, we're going to look at, flip back and forth, look at these stories and kind of get at this whole idea of fair and the standard that God uses or the value God has in place of fairness. Just for background... Saul was the first king of Israel. There's a prophet named Samuel, the book, First and Second Samuel. So there's a prophet named Samuel. And at one point, the people ask for a king. God, Samuel says, you don't want a king. The people say, we do want a king. God says, give him a king. So he goes and finds Saul. That's who God picks. He anoints him. That just means he dumped oil on his head, which said, you're the king. So Saul is the first king. He did not seek out the position. Samuel came and got him. David is the second. Same thing. He did not seek out the position. He was not related to Saul. God tells Samuel when he's kind of done with Saul, says, go find this other guy. He goes, it's David, same thing, dumps oil on his head. You're the king. And then both of them had signs that confirmed in their own life that they were, in fact, the king. I'm saying that just to say they had the same foundation. They started from the same starting line. The same guy anointed them in the same way. And that guy, Samuel, told both of them, these are the rules. This is what it means to be a king of Israel. You can go back and read that. We don't have time. This is what it means. This is what you're to do. This is how you're to act. All that kind of jazz. So that's the setup. This is starting in verse... I'm in 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 1. If you get tired of flipping, all this stuff will be on the screen. Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel, so listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now that might, you might not think that's very nice, but it's clear, right? Very clear what God had told Saul to do. If you want to see why he's doing that, you can go back. I think it's in Exodus 17. And basically the Amalekites ambushed the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt. They, they, it was, they just ambushed them, and this is judgment on that. So very clear, right, what Saul's supposed to do. And this is a guy talking to him. Samuel is talking to him like I'm talking to you. It's not an idea Saul had. Very clear. Skip down to verse 7. So Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Did he obey? No. Verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. So there you have Saul, very clear instructions, very clearly disobeyed, in God's response, very disappointed, grieved that Saul is the king. You can flip over to 2 Samuel. We're going to start in verse 11. This is a long chunk, one of many. So just hang in there. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men. Joab was the leader of his army and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So the picture, springtime, everybody goes to war. David should have been with them. He stayed home. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. 
The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. That just means she wasn't pregnant when she met David. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, the commander of the army, Send me Uriah, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So you, you get what David's trying to do there. He's trying to get Uriah to go home. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why don't you go home? Uriah said, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my wife to eat and drink? How could I go to my house, excuse me, to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat along with his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. He, in it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Skip over to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, so that's Bathsheba, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, probably a week, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So there you get David, second king. Now, his instructions, he didn't have what Saul had where Samuel came and said, do this. But David broke four of the Ten Commandments in this one episode. Six is don't murder. Seven is don't commit adultery. Nine is don't lie. And ten is don't covet your neighbor's wife. He did all of them in a pretty short period of time. And you saw what God's response was. Just like God's grieved that he made Saul king, God is displeased at what David had done. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Don't give me a Sunday school answer. Who did the worst thing? Don't give me all sins are the same. Sins are the same this way because all sin alienates us from God. But if you have a choice and I tell you I'm going to call you an idiot, I'm going to punch you in the mouth, or I'm going to shoot you, what are you going to ask me to do? They're all sins, but the consequences are radically different here. Who did the worst thing? David, absolutely. Absolutely he did the worst thing. He slept with another man's wife, and then he killed the guy. That's awful. Saul didn't kill a few sheep, and he didn't kill some cows, and he left the king alive. David slept with another man's wife and killed him. Off, way worse. Way worse what he did. So, who should God take to the woodshed? David. Absolutely. If you read those two stories in the paper, this is what one guy did, this is what one guy... Who would you think is going to get the book thrown at him if they're in court? David. He killed somebody. Saul didn't. Of course he's the one who should get taken to the woodshed. But, 1 Samuel 15, verse 26. Samuel says to Saul, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. So that's Saul's punishment. Rejected as the king of Israel. That might not sound like a big deal, but big deal. 
Saul's the king, been rejected as the king of Israel. Based on the fair meter, David ought to get something a lot worse. What Saul did was not as bad as what David did. So if Saul gets rejected as king, David's burned alive in boiling oil or something like that. So 2 Samuel 12, this is what God says to David, starting the second part of verse 13. Nathan, Nathan's a prophet. Samuel's died at this point. Nathan's the new prophet. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But, 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 excuse me. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. Now, I'm going to slide over here because some of you moms are going to, you're going to be thinking about that the rest of the time. The, the son who was conceived between David and Bathsheba dies. Now, if you skip down and you were going to go on and reading, we don't have time, you'll see that David's immediate response to hearing that is he goes into the temple, he doesn't eat for seven days, he prays, he fasts, he weeps. At the end of this week, his servants come to him and say, the baby's dead. They're afraid to tell him this because he's such a wreck. And they think he's a wreck when the baby's alive. When they find out the baby's, he's, he's going to lose it. And they go to him and say, the baby is, is um, you can cut this way. You're good. Nope. Don't worry about it at all. So he says, you know, the baby's dead, and, and David gets up, and he's good. And they say, well, how come you're okay? And he said, well, while the baby was alive, I thought if I prayed, God might save it. He didn't. And so I'm not going to, the baby will not come to me, but I will go to the baby. The picture there is the baby's in paradise. That's what happens to babies when they die. They go to paradise. And that's where, that's where Jesus said the thief would be, the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. We don't know exactly what that is, but we know it's good. And that's where, so you don't need to fret over the baby. He's or she taken care of in paradise. When David dies, they're reunited, all that jazz. So what I want you to hear is, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. So to me, David gets off the hook compared to Saul. No rejecting, none of that. Just you're, you're not going to die. God wasn't happy with you. Your sin has been taken away. Now, that's tough on the fair meter when you think that the guy who did the worst thing got the lightest punishment. Those are the things that drive us nuts because they're not fair. And so the question for me is, who's keeping score? Like, how does that math play out that David does, David gets off better than Saul? Flip back to 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. So there you see Saul's pretty arrogant, going to build a statue in his own honor. Then Samuel reached him. Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Now, that's just a lie, flat out. And you should know, anytime somebody comes to you with something, like, that's a preemptive lie. Before you even have anything to say, time to say anything, that's what they come at you with. Not, hey, not good morning, not how are you. I kept the Lord's instructions. Not a normal greeting for most people. I don't know if that's how you greet people when you see them. Saul's trying to steer the conversation. Maybe you've done that before. You know you've messed up, so before you have a chance to say anything to me, I'm going to move this over onto favorable ground exactly what Saul's doing. He's trying to get it, get this thing on favorable ground. He's got a guilty conscience. He knows he's messed up. Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I heard? Remember, he's supposed to take out all the animals. Saul said, how about this? The soldiers, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites, blaming. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. 
but we totally destroyed the rest, justifying. The soldiers did it. They're the ones that, it wasn't me, it was them. But they did it for a good reason. They did it in order to sacrifice to you. We know how much God likes sacrifices, and so we kept all this good stuff for God. Isn't that great? Stop, Samuel says. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me. Samuel says, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Now, this is pathetic. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, blaming the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. This is 10-year-old this is stuff. I did obey you except when I didn't. I followed all your instructions except for the ones I didn't follow. And that's what... What? It doesn't... He's the king. He's a grown man. And this is what he's saying. Samuel says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. Then Saul said, So after this verdict has come in, you're rejected. Then Saul says, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people. And so I gave in to them. Another excuse. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Even when he, when he finally admits that he sinned, it's only after he's been, he knows what the punishment is. You're going to be cut off as king. Oh, well, in that case, I did sin. And you can see, even in his doing that, he's saying, Samuel, you come back with me. Samuel's a prophet. He's a stud. He was a stud since he was a boy and everybody knew it. And so if Samuel and Saul, if there's a public break between them, Everybody's money is that Samuel is in favor with God and Saul is not. That's a pretty easy, that's an easy thing. Samuel is the spiritual authority in Israel. So if he and Saul have a divorce, it's obvious who's at fault and it's not Samuel. And so what Saul is saying is stay with me. Just, he's, he knows he's going to lose credibility. He's going to lose some of his authority to rule if Samuel distances himself from him. It's, it's not a true it's not true repentance. He's just trying to get what he wants. He's trying to hold on to the throne. And so Samuel's ticked, obviously. God has said you're rejected. Well, if apologizing is what's going to get it, then I'm sorry, I sinned. So that's Saul. Flip over to back to 2 Samuel 12. The Lord said to Nathan, remember Nathan is the prophet now. Samuel uh, has died and Nathan is the prophet in Israel. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said that it's not fair. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You're the man. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. You can skip over to verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You see the difference in those two responses? David never lies. He never blames. He never justifies. He never dodges. When, when this, it's pointed out to him, you're the guy. David says, guilty. I'm the guy. And just so you don't think it was flippant, you can flip over to Psalm 51. David wrote this psalm at this time. That's your, your, if your Bible has little headings, it'll say, this is a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he committed adultery. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out all my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Just think about what Saul did as you listen to this. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Listen to this. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Do you hear the difference between David and Saul? Even in that one part, what, Dave, what Saul is saying, I disobeyed you. And the reason I disobeyed you is we're going to use all these bulls and cows and all this stuff that we should have destroyed all this stuff, this fruit of our sin, we're going to sacrifice it to you, God, because we know you like that stuff. And David says, God, I know you don't like that stuff. What you like is a humble heart. And that's what David had. God 100% absolutely keeps score. Totally keeps score. He just tracks something different than we track. What we track a lot of times are deeds. We track good deeds and bad deeds, and we want to see how everything plays out. Okay, he's done a lot of good stuff, so it's fair for him to get a lot of good stuff. This person's done a little bit of good stuff, so it's only fair for them to get a little bit of good stuff. This person's been a Christian for a long time. It's fair for God to do a lot of good stuff in their life because they've been walking this road. for. This person's only been a Christian for a short time. That's not fair. They got too much too soon. Or, I suffered more than that person. It's not fair. It's not fair that they got dot, dot, dot when I didn't get dot, 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 whatever it is. That's not fair. God, don't you see what's happening here? You're not being fair. 
That's what we track. God's got a different scorecard. He's looking, deeds are important, but he's looking at hearts. And what he's looking for is a humble heart. We've talked before, humility means dependence upon the Lord. He's looking for people who depend upon him. And David got it. So he gets the point. His sin was way more heinous than Saul's. But he comes out ahead because on God's scorecard, he, David has what God's looking for. He has a broken heart. You, you heard it. He's torn up over what he did. And God looks at that and says, that's the kind of guy I'm looking for. Saul is not torn up over what he did. He lies about it. He blames other people, says he was, I mean, he just makes up, it's like your eight-year-old. Come on. Even though what he did wasn't as bad, the heart's not there. He's going to build a monument for himself, for goodness sakes. That's what, where's humility in that? And so he's rejected. What you need to hear is God didn't reject Saul proactively. It's a reaction to Saul's rejection of God. Saul rejected God's grace. So all God has left to do is reject Saul. We can only stand on the ground of grace. The Bible says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. There's a gap between us and God. Every one of us will say, yeah, I've sinned. You've done at least one thing wrong at some point in your life. So there's a sin there. There's a gap there. And so how do we bridge the gap? Can my character bridge it? Absolutely not. Can my record bridge it? No. It'll condemn me too. What about my sincerity? No. What about my family? No. I, there's nothing bridges that gap. David recognized that, and so he says, have mercy on me. That's the only thing that bridges the gap, the grace of God. David recognized that and received it, and so God was able to restore him. If Saul had done the same thing, Saul would have been fine. If when Samuel came to him and said, what did you do? And if Saul said, I blew it, I was afraid of all these men, I thought they were going to scatter, and so I jumped, I didn't do it. If he had done that, he'd have been fine. But he didn't. He justified, he lied, he evaded, he blamed. He tried to bridge the gap himself, and he was rejected. You reject the grace of God, God has no choice. Because you can't stand on any other ground. So if we choose to reject God's grace, he's got no choice but then to reject us. Because we can't stand, we can't bridge that gap. So that's David and Saul. And what does that have to do with us? I would just say this. Most of us sin like Saul. There are not tons of people in this room who've sinned like David. Not many of you have broken four out of ten in one day. Maybe you have. But most of us sin like Saul. We do things that in our eyes are small. They're petty. Come on. It's just a few sheep, for goodness sakes. And it's easy to avoid. It's easy to blame. It's easy to justify. It's easy to lie about. We sin like Saul. But the catch is we also respond like Saul. We don't get the grace that has been shown to us. We actually reject it a lot of times because we're not willing to admit, hey, we've sinned. I know a handful of people who've sinned like David, and every one of them was broken. When you've done something like what David has done and you get caught, you recognize pretty quick you're at the bottom of a hole you can't crawl out of. All you can do is ask for help. All you can do is call out for mercy. Those guys get it. Those of us, some of us are winners. We've been good at everything we've ever done. You've been a Christian for a long time. 
You've never screwed up huge. Everywhere you go, people pat you on the back, and they're just glad to have you around. Everything you try, you've never been rejected. You've gotten every job you've gone for. You're a winner. It's hard for people like that to relate to David and what he did. Well, grace is for other people. It's not for people like me. I don't need it. I'm good. You want to show me that transcript? That's where some of us live. That's Saul. We think we've only, we've only sinned a little, so we only needed a little grace just to kind of push us over the edge, keeps us back from the Lord. There's a story in Luke 7. Jesus is, goes to a guy's house. He goes to a Pharisee's house. And while he's in there eating, a woman comes in. It's a prostitute comes in, and she starts crying and anointing his feet with her tears and all this jazz. And the, the Pharisee is thinking, man, if he knew who was touching him, he'd tell her to get away. She's making him, she's unclean. You can't. Why is he letting her touch him? And Jesus knows that. And so he says, tells a story. I think the guy's name is Simon. He says, Simon, um, let's say there's two guys. One guy owes a money lender $10,000. One guy owes a money lender $100. Neither one of them's got the money. The $10,000 guy doesn't have the money. The $100 guy doesn't have the money. Neither of them has it. The money lender says to both of them, you know what? <laughs> Debts are canceled. Who is going to love the money lender the most? And Simon says, well, the one who had $10,000 who owed $10,000, and Jesus says, absolutely right. The person who has been forgiven much loves much. I know exactly who this woman is. I know exactly what she's done, and she's been forgiven much. And you can see the response. You, on the other hand, Simon, he's a winner. Simon's a winner. He doesn't think he's sinned much. So there's not much to be forgiven of, and so there's not much love there. God just kind of gave him a little bit of bitty boost he pulled this other woman up from the pit david was in the pit and god pulled and he knew that and for us i think it can be difficult the solution is not to go out and see how many of the ten commandments you can break tomorrow so then you can say well i've sinned a lot so i can be forgiven so that's not the don't do that the solution is to recognize how much you have been forgiven no matter how much you've done Let me close with this. This is Matthew 20. The last thing I'll read to you. Starting in verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. A denarius is a day's wage. So that's, that's fair. You work for a day, you get paid for a day. About the third hour, so that's nine, he goes out at six in the morning, hires his first crew, goes out at nine and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went out. He went out again about the sixth hour, that's noon, and the ninth hour, three, and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, so that's five o'clock, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one hired us. He said, you go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages beginning with the last ones and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. When those who came who'd been hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered them, Friend, am I, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I'm generous? Now, 
there are probably not a lot of people in this room who say, I was hired at 6. Maybe you are hired at 9 or 12. Most of us don't think we were hired at 5. We've been at this a long time, and we're pretty good people. And it's not fair that some people get hired at 5, and they work for an hour, and they get the same thing as someone who's worked 12 hours. It's not, it's not fair. I'm saying it is not fair. But God doesn't care. It's gracious, and that's the value. And for all of us, we need to recognize we've all been hired at 5. I don't care how long you've been doing this. I don't care how righteously you've lived. I don't care how much you've suffered. You were hired at 5 o'clock, just like me. Every one of us was. All of us have been hired. Someone has been doing this longer, better, stronger, more suffering than you and me. We've all been hired late. And until we get that, we cut off the, everything God wants to give us. God gives grace to the humble. To be humble, to be fully dependent on God, we've got to recognize that we need him. That all that he's given us is every good thing you've got. I don't care how smart you are or how hard you worked. Every good thing that you have has been given to you by the Lord. Somebody's smarter than you. Somebody's worked harder than you and they don't have it. It's all been given. You've got to cooperate with God's grace. Absolutely. But everything is a gift. We've all been hired at five and we've gotten way more than we've deserved. He's paid us for 12 hours and we've worked for one. And if we can get that, it opens us up to love more. It opens us up to receive more. If we can't, we're Saul. And ultimately, that leads to being rejected by God, not because he wants to, but because we're rejecting what he's trying to give us. I'm rejecting God's grace. He has no, no choice but to set me aside because I can't stand on anything else. If I can recognize my need for his grace, that keeps me open to what he wants to do in my life. Just like David. David was not set aside. He was judged. Absolutely. He was not set aside because he recognized the only shot he had was God's grace. And it opened him, he opened himself up to receive that, and he continued on. Let's pray. You guys can come back up. We're going to close with a little ministry. This quilt is up here. If you guys want to come up and um, tie a knot and pray, that would be awesome. Just do your best to slip out. I'll be up front if you want prayer about anything. Y'all can stand up, sorry. Let me pray and then we'll, Bo will close us out. I know it's been long. I appreciate y'all hanging in there. One other subcategory, and this might be you. There are some people in this room who have sin like David. And your problem is you don't, you're not living forgiven. You still think you've got a scarlet letter on your chest. And you need to realize that's not true. If you will receive the grace of God into your life, you don't have to sit at the back of the bus anymore. To be forgiven is to be fully restored. There might still be some consequences in this life in terms of your relationships or something like that. But in terms of the way God views you, to be forgiven is to be forgiven. And you need to grab onto that. If you've sinned like David and you've allowed yourself to believe that you've got to walk a half step behind everybody else with your head hanging down, that's a lie. The Bible's very clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're not dirty anymore. So stop living like it. For those of you who struggle with being a Saul, you just honestly, you're a pretty good folk. You're a pretty good guy, pretty good girl. You've never really done anything wrong. The whole concept of grace is difficult for you because you really honestly haven't really needed it. You've been able to get by on what you've gotten, and you've done, you've done fine. What you need to ask is that the Lord would show you how much you've been forgiven. We've all actually sinned like David. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery in his heart. If anyone calls someone an idiot, they're, they're in danger of the fires of hell. You've done that this week. I have. I've already sinned like David, and I need to recognize the forgiveness that I've received. And you maybe need to recognize the forgiveness you've received, not morbidly, not to beat yourself up and whip yourself, but so we'll all be free to love much. God wants to give more grace, and we just need to open our mouths wide to receive it. And the way to do that is to recognize our need. That's what humility is, recognizing your need. So, Lord, I pray that we would do that. I pray you would stir our hearts today. You would stir our hearts this week, that we would recognize our need for you. And even more than that, we would recognize your willingness to meet that need. God, I pray like David that we would be quick to admit when we've gone off track and we would be quick to receive your forgiveness and to get back on track. God, I pray that we would be a people who are driven by grace. In Jesus' name.